Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. This is Democracy Now! Claiming you have money that you do not have does not amount to the art of the deal. It's the art of the steal. New York Attorney General Letitia James has sued Donald Trump and his children for fraud. Also, a three-judge panel rules the Justice Department can resume using classified records seized at Mar-a-Lago in its investigation of Trump's mishandling of government documents. Is this the greatest legal peril Trump has been in yet? We'll speak to the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist David K. Johnston, then to Iran. Protests are escalating in Iran after a 22-year-old Kurdish woman died in police custody after being detained for improperly wearing a hijab. We'll get the latest. Then to the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. More than 200 people died last week. And we'll speak to the deputy foreign minister of Cuba about U.S.-Cuban relations, immigration and sanctions. For the United States, it is not enough to have a policy directed to trying to provoke hunger, malnutrition, and scarcity in Cuba. Besides that, after doing this, they are urging the Cuban people, by using $6 million from taxpayers, to rise up against the government because of the problems we are facing as a result of the blockade. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. New York's attorney general has sued Donald Trump, three of his adult children and other executives at the Trump Organization, accusing them of widespread financial fraud. Letitia James announced the charges Thursday, saying that for over a decade, the Trumps grossly inflated their business's net worth by billions of dollars while deceiving lenders, insurers and tax officials with false and misleading financial statements. James' civil lawsuit seeks a quarter billion dollars in penalties and to bar the Trumps from operating a business in New York. James is also sharing her findings with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, the IRS and the Department of Justice to aid any future criminal prosecutions of the Trumps. The pattern of fraud and deception that was used by Mr. Trump and the Trump Organization for their own financial benefit is astounding. Claiming you have money that you do not have does not amount to the art of the deal. It's the art of the steal. And there cannot be different rules for different people in this country or in this state. And former presidents are no different. A federal appeals court has ruled the Justice Department can resume its use of records marked as classified in its investigation of former Trump's mishandling of government documents. The ruling's a major setback for Donald Trump in his efforts to derail a federal criminal probe into whether he violated the Espionage Act and presidential records laws and whether he obstructed justice to cover up those crimes. On Wednesday, a three-judge panel of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals rejected key parts of the federal order by federal district judge Eileen Cass 
Bannon that put the DOJ's investigation on hold while a special master reviews the documents. Judge Cannon was nominated to the federal bench by President Trump. On Wednesday, Donald Trump gave his first TV interview since the FBI executed the search warrant at his Mar-a-Lago resort in August. Trump told Fox News there doesn't have to be a process by which presidents declassify secret materials. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection says it's reached an agreement with Ginny Thomas, the far-right activist and wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, to have her testify. In the weeks following the November 2020 election, Ginny Thomas sent a flurry of text messages to Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, urging him to take action to prevent a Biden victory. The messages included conspiracy theories popularized by the far-right QAnon movement. Thomas also attended the so-called Stop the Steal rally in Washington. Washington, D.C., that preceded the January 6th assault on Congress. And she lobbied dozens of Republican lawmakers in Wisconsin and Arizona to overturn Joe Biden's Electoral College victory. The House Committee is expected to hold its last public hearing on Wednesday, September 28th. The House of Representatives has approved a bill to reform the Electoral Count Act in an effort to prevent a repeat of January 6, 2021. The legislation clarifies the vice president has no power to overturn the votes cast by the Electoral College. It would also make it harder for lawmakers to object to a state's electoral votes. 203 House Republicans voted to reject the bill, prompting Democrats to accuse them of siding with insurrectionists. This is Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. To all those who oppose this legislation, I ask you, how could anyone vote against free and fair elections, a cornerstone of our Constitution? In Russia, protests erupted in Moscow, St. Petersburg, and at least three dozen other cities Wednesday after President Vladimir Putin announced plans to mobilize 300,000 additional troops to fight in Ukraine. In Moscow, demonstrators chanting Yet Voynya, or No to War, were met by officers in riot gear who dragged them into police buses. A Russian human rights monitor says similar scenes played out across almost 40 Russian cities as police arrested nearly 1,400 people Wednesday. Russia and Ukraine have agreed to a swap that'll see 215 Ukrainian prisoners of war released in exchange for 55 prisoners held by Kyiv, including a Ukrainian businessman and an ally of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Among those set to be released are members of the Ukraine Azov Regiment, which fought a weeks-long battle against Russia in the city of Mariupol before finally surrendering in May. Meanwhile, Russian-backed separatists in eastern Ukraine have released two U.S. citizens and eight other foreign nationals as part of a complex prisoner exchange. The deal was brokered by the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, and the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Here in New York, President Biden addressed the United Nations General Assembly Wednesday, calling on nations to give more weapons and aid to Ukraine, while condemning Vladimir Putin's invasion as a threat to the U.N. Charter and to democracy. Because if nations can pursue their imperial ambitions without consequences— then we put at risk everything this very institution stands for, everything. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky also addressed the General Assembly, saying in a rare video address that, quote, a crime has been committed against Ukraine and we demand just punishment, unquote. 
The U.S. Senate has ratified an amendment to an international treaty that seeks to phase out the use of hydrofluorocarbons, or HFCs, chemicals commonly used in refrigerators and air conditioners that contribute to the climate emergency. HFCs emerged as a popular substitute to fluorocarbons, which are largely banned under the Montreal Protocol. A 1987 treaty to end the use of chemicals that deplete the Earth's protective ozone layer. But HFCs are extremely potent greenhouse gases, trapping heat in the atmosphere about a thousand times more effectively than carbon dioxide. On Thursday, 69 senators voted to amend the Montreal Protocol to phase out the use of HFCs. Senate Democratic Majority Leader Chuck Schumer celebrated the move. Experts say that phasing out our use of HFCs will help prevent up to half a degree Celsius of warming by the end of the century. Ratifying the Kigali Amendment, along with passing the Inflation Reduction Act, is the strongest one-two punch against climate change any Congress has ever undertaken. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin has unveiled a bill that would speed federal review of energy projects. The legislation would shorten public comment periods on proposed fossil fuel projects while weakening environmental and public health laws. It would also fast-track approval of the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which would carry frack gas across Manchin's home state of West Virginia. Food and Water Watch blasted the legislation as a, quote, shameless handout to the fossil fuel industry, a green light for oil and gas companies to keep Keep on digging, drilling, fracking, and polluting, they said. The former Minneapolis police officer who pinned George Floyd's legs to the pavement while fellow officer Derek Chauvin choked him to death was sentenced to three years in prison by a Minnesota court Wednesday. Thomas Lane had pleaded guilty in May to a second-degree manslaughter charge in connection with Floyd's murder in May 2020. Lane is already serving a 30-month federal prison term for violating Floyd's civil rights. The Federal Reserve has voted to raise U.S. interest rates for the third consecutive time, bringing the cost of borrowing money from the Treasury above 3 percent. Fed Chair Jerome Powell acknowledged Wednesday the move could lead the U.S. into a recession, but said the need to battle inflation outpaced the prospect of an economic slowdown. Powell said the U.S. housing market is headed for a correction and said U.S. unemployment remains too low with demand for labor outpacing supply. The labor market continues to be out of balance, with demand for workers substantially exceeding the supply of available workers. Ed's interest rate hikes have prompted fierce criticism from progressives and union leaders. Massachusetts Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren tweeted, quote, I've been warning that Chair Powell's Fed would throw millions of Americans out of work, and I fear he's already on the path to doing so, Warren said. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Former President Donald Trump suffered two major legal setbacks Wednesday. New York Attorney General Letitia James filed a civil lawsuit against Donald Trump, three of his adult children, Donald Jr., uh, as well as Ivanka and Eric, and other executives at the Trump Organization, accusing them of widespread financial fraud. James accused the Trumps of inflating their businesses' net worth by billions of dollars while deceiving lenders, insurers, and tax officials with false and misleading financial statements. Claiming you have money that you do not have, 
does not amount to the art of the deal. It's the art of the steal. In a second legal setback for Trump, a three-judge panel of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals ruled the Justice Department can resume its use of classified records seized as Mar-a-Lago estate in its investigation of Trump's mishandling of government documents. The judges, including two who were appointed by Trump, rejected key parts of an order by federal district judge Eileen Cannon that put the DOJ's investigation on hold while a special master reviews the documents. To talk about these two stories. We're joined by the Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter David K. Johnston, who's been covering Trump and writing books about him uh, since the 1980s. He's co-founder of DC Report and, uh, and author of many books, including It's Even Worse Than You Think, What the Trump Administration is Doing to America. David K. Johnston, welcome back to Democracy Now! So let's start with Letitia James. Talk about the significance of this civil suit against Donald Trump and his three adult children. Well, Letitia James's 220-page lawsuit identifies 200 acts of fraud. Uh, in some cases, Trump overvalued real estate he owned by 65 times. Uh, worse uh, for Trump, uh, Donald often says when something is amiss, well, I just did what the lawyers told me to do, or I did what the accountants told me to do. James shows in her filing that uh, Trump got an appraisal for his one of his buildings in Manhattan of $200 million. He then valued it at more than $500 million, and in his financial statement, attributed the value to the appraisers. Uh, you know, real estate can involve ranges. You say your house is worth 300000 The tax collector says it's worth 350000 But you're not going to be able to assert that that house is worth 30000 or $3,000. And that's effectively what Donald was doing. And what he got out of this, Amy, is by inflating his net worth, he was able to borrow more money and borrow on better terms which hurts all the rest of us because there's not an unlimited amount of money out there to borrow. And then by deflating the values for property tax purposes, he avoided paying his uh, uh, the, the amount of property tax he should have paid on those properties. So it was a double win for him, and he's gotten away with this for decades. Now he's going to have to answer in civil court. So talk about the significance of this, what he and his children face, and the fact that although this is civil, that could bring down his empire in New York, um, he's also—Letitia James is referring this for criminal charges to the IRS and the Manhattan DA. Well, let's do the civil side first. Um, you and I, as— natural persons have a right to our life. Corporations are artificial persons. They are creatures of the state, and they exist only by the grace of the state and their compliance with the law. She is proposing that the Trump organization and its affiliated organizations, these corporations, be uh, put, out of, put out of existence. Uh, she has, uh, wants the court to rule that he may not serve on any board so he could still own property, but he would have to own it directly in his own name, which exposes him to all sorts of legal liability. He would not be able to borrow any money from any bank that is certified to be a bank in New York, which means if he wants to borrow money, he'd end up going to some little bank in the middle of Iowa. 
Um, all of this is just devastating to his business. And the same restrictions would apply to uh, his three older children and two of his e former executives. And, and keep in mind that the New York State Attorney General's office, which only has civil authority, previously got the fake Trump University shut down and the Trump uh, Foundation, which was a fraud, and collected damages, significant damages in those cases. Now, on the criminal side, uh, Letitia James's office has been working with Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan District Attorney, on his criminal case. He killed a criminal case on racketeering, but Bragg has uh, apparently continued to look into Trump in the area of taxes. And uh, it's very clear the civil complaint makes out what, if verified and found by a court to be true, are criminal actions, many criminal actions by Trump, his children, uh, the other executives and the companies themselves. She's also referred this to the Southern District of New York, the federal prosecutors in Manhattan, and to the Internal Revenue Service. David, could you also talk about the second uh, legal setback that Trump has faced, a three-judge panel uh, of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, a ruling that the Justice Department can resume its use of classified records seized at his Mar-a-Lago estate in its investigation of Trump's mishandling of government documents. Talk about the significance of that and whether you think overall this may disqualify Trump from running for president in the next election. Well, uh, Donald, Trump, uh, Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago was the subject of a search warrant. Uh, unarmed FBI agents in mufti, so that you didn't know, they didn't have jackets on saying FBI, came, executed a search warrant. Uh, Trump then went to court, and a judge that he appointed wrote one of the most incoherent decisions by a judge I've ever read in my life, uh, Eileen Cannon did not seem to even understand that the FBI is part of the intelligence community in the U.S., and she banned the FBI and the Justice Department from pursuing, with the use of these documents, whether Donald Trump had endangered American national security, particularly the identities of spies and cooperating agents. Uh, the Justice Department appealed this decision, and a three-judge panel on the 11th Circuit, two of the judges appointed by Donald Trump, one by Barack Obama, all agreed that this decision by the judge is nonsense. I mean, they, in legal terms, slapped her around for being an idiot. And uh, they said, that, of course, the uh, Justice Department may go back and continue to uh, use these documents in an effort to assess how much damage has been done to American national security and pursue the criminal cases. This is very, very bad for Donald Trump. Uh, the government has made clear that they are looking at Trump for violation of the Espionage Act. And of course, there's a fundamental question of where are the missing files that, according to the Justice Department, identify People who might be, for example, um, a high-level official inside uh, the Kremlin or Tehran or some other place who are uh, providing us with useful information. Uh, so this is very bad for, for Trump.
David K. Johnston, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter, co-founder and editor of DCReport.org. Coming up, protests are escalating in Iran after a 22-year-old woman died in police custody after being detained for allegedly improperly wearing a hijab. Also later, we'll speak with the deputy foreign minister of Cuba. Stay with us. Behind the Seas by Farid Shafinari. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermi Sheikh. Protests continue to escalate in Iran after a 22-year-old Kurdish woman died in the custody of Iran's so-called morality police. The woman, Masa Amini, died after being detained for allegedly leaving some of her hair visible in violation of an Iranian law requiring women to cover their head. Witnesses said Amini was severely beaten in a police van. She was later hospitalized in a coma, died Friday. In a bid to quell the protest, Internet access has been restricted in parts of Iran and access to WhatsApp and Instagram have been curbed. At least seven protesters have reportedly been killed. Video post online show women burning their hijabs. Joining us now in Washington, D.C., is Nagar Mortazavi. She is an Iranian-American journalist, political analyst, host of the Iran podcast. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Nagar. Talk about the significance first of her death, of this young woman's death and these mass protests that erupted across Iran. Well, Amy, we have seen and Iranians have seen image after image, footages, video, handheld, uh, mobile phones capturing the violence of this morality police or as they literally call it, the guidance police, which is as, as they uh, claim, is supposed to be guiding people into how to dress and how to behave uh, Islamically. But it's turned into an actual force of harassment against women and some men on the streets in Tehran, trying to arrest women violently, uh, throwing them into police vans, beating them while, they're, while arresting them. So this anger against the morality police and the violence that they're committing on the streets has been building up for years and with the evidence that people have seen with their own eyes. And then the death of this young woman, or essentially as people see it, the killing of her while she was in custody of the morality police. She was arrested, thrown in a van, taken to the detention center where she was supposed to, quote unquote, go through a training to be guided as to how to dress. And then eventually she ended up in the hospital and her body was given to her family. The anger has been building up for years among women and also men who many women see herself in Masamini. Many men see their own sister, their own daughter, essentially saying this could be any of us. Um, and this could happen to any of us in the hands of the morality police. So the anger is just endless. It's been building up and now it's just pouring into the streets of many cities across Iran. 
And Nigar, as you mentioned, there are unbelievable images coming out of Iran. Uh, uh, many uh, protests are being led by women, women burning their hijab, women cutting off their hair uh, in front of hundreds, if not thousands of people uh, who are cheering. I mean, can you talk about this uh, unprecedented act of defiance uh, uh, and where you think this might lead? Definitely. So women have been pushing back and resisting against the morality police individually or in smaller groups on a case-by-case -case situation whenever they were encountering the morality police. But this time it seems like a collective pushback coming to the street and these iconic images, as you said, um, basically saying that enough is enough and that they're fed up with this mandatory dress code that's being forced on them. We see images of women throwing their scarves in the fire, which in the past, you would see women take off their scarf, and then when the police was around, they would put it back on. When you throw it in the fire, the scarf is gone. It can't be retrieved. So it's an enough is enough uh, show of defiance. Also, cutting the hair is a sign of grieving, is a sign of anger. So grieving for Masa Amini, showing that they want to take uh, control of their own bodies, their own dignity, their right, and... Uh, it's just incredible, the bravery of the young generation. These are women in their 20s, university students and major universities in Iran are also protesting. And they're really risking their lives because we also see very violent crackdown and security forces shooting at protesters. And so those who are on the street are really putting their lives on the line to try and uh, demand their, their rights and equality. But there's also a very strong uh, class dimension uh, to the way in which uh, Mahsa Amini was targeted. Uh, could you talk about the, the importance of the region she was from, the Kurdish region of Iran? She was simply visiting uh, Tehran. She does not live there. And uh, her origins in this relatively poor, uh, disenfranchised and, and rural area. Sure. So Masa Amini is from, as you said, the Kurdish area in the western border of Iran. It's an area uh, where the Kurdish minority lives. And there's been so much um, tension and essentially pressure and repression on this minority community from the central government. And tensions are always high in that region. Her being Kurdish um, wasn't necessarily the reason she was picked on. The morality police picks on all kinds of women from all walks of life. Um, but when the protest broke out, the funeral of her family, the kind of pressure that her family is going um, is, is being subjected to being from that minority area has become uh, even more severe. The protests in that area for, um, for, for, for her killing have become uh, violent, meaning the crackdown in that area has become violent and the state is trying to repress any form of dissent in that specific area. But as far as the morality police uh, and especially people who live in Tehran, they're saying essentially she was visiting our city. She was a guest in our city, in the capital. And this is how she was treated by by the forces, by the police forces. And essentially um, her body was given to her family. Nigar, the Iranian president addressed the U.N. General Assembly yesterday. Your response to what he said. And what number do you have of the number of protesters who've been killed or beaten so far in Iran? 
Well, the Iranian president spoke a lot about inequality and justice and uh, rights violations by other countries with, with a lot of emphasis on the U.S. and how the U.S. has wronged Iran. But there wasn't much address of what's actually going on inside Iran. No mention of Masa Amini, uh, really, or the, the ordeal that her family is going through. There was another uh, leader, um, I believe the Chilean president, who actually mentioned Masa Amini's name and uh, a few others who talked about women's rights and their fight for dignity in Iran. So the internal or the domestic uh, situation or the protest wasn't really addressed, although um, the president has announced that he has a team investigating the reason or what led to Masami's death. Again, the population is very skeptical of these investigations that have been done by the state in the past, uh, not putting a lot of trust into what will come out of it. But um, overall, it just seems like uh, the, they want to ignore the international attention that's being given to what's happening inside Iran, while the protesters and the people on the ground are actually asking for global solidarity, for international support um, to help them raise their cause into a global stage. And Nigar, could you uh, talk also about the fact another striking feature of these protests is that they're not just, uh, uh, you know, concentrated either in the region that Masa Amini was from, the Kurdish region or Tehran, but also there have been massive protests in cities uh, that have a religious significance for uh, the Shia majority, Mashhad and Qom. Uh, could you talk about the, the significance of that? Sure. So the protests have spread to uh, large and small cities, as you said, to, uh, I think at this point, two dozen cities and, and small towns across the country, because this is the reality of the everyday life of any Iranian woman. There have been numerous stories, many, many stories of religious women, women who observe the hijab in the private of their home, going outside and being stopped by the morality police because the uh, supposed agent didn't deem what they were wearing Islamic enough at that moment. It's also very subjective. It's not very clear who they stop, why they stop, what is appropriate, what is not appropriate. Uh, certain people with more resources, if they're in their own car, if they're they're in in their um, houses in certain neighborhoods, seem to be getting away with this from this harassment. And women who are present in the public space in the cities, they take the metro like Massa did. They take the bus. They go to work seem to be subjected to more harassment by the morality police. So it's spread to, as you also said, I mean, to religious cities like Mashhad, like Qom, the religious center of Iran, because this is the reality of any uh, woman who is living in any part of Iran, and they're angry about it. And again, they see, they feel solidarity because they see themselves in Massa. I mean, this young woman, 22-year-old, not even from Tehran, visiting a large city and um, this happening to her. And Nagar, finally, we just have a minute. Could you talk about the extent to which the protests are also about the economic situation in Iran, 50 percent inflation, current the currency at an all time low and how that's tied to uh, the continuing U.S. sanctions, maximum pressure sanctions against Iran? 
Well, I mean, these protests are not centered on the economy, but that's the underlying grievance that's been building up over the years. The economic situation, political repression, social, cultural pressure on artists, on filmmakers, on political activists, on journalists. It's been building up and it's not been addressed by the state. And uh, also with a stalemate with the nuclear deal, there, there doesn't seem to be any prospect for sanctions relief for the country, which could give some economic uh, benefit to Iran. So this, this situation seems to be continuing in the last few years, and it's just building up the grievance and the anger in the population, especially the young population, doesn't seem a prospect, a future for themselves, a lot of opportunities. And um, then they also feel like their dignity and their basic right has been violated by the state so violently to the point of this woman's um, death. So they're on the streets centered on, on these very rights um, and dignity-centered issues, but the underlying grievances are also economic, political, social, and even cultural. Negar Murtazavi, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Iranian-American journalist, political analyst, host of the Iran podcast. This thank is you. Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. As we turn to look at the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, 200 troops died earlier this month after Azerbaijan attacked Armenia in the latest round of violence between the two neighbors in the South Caucasus region. The violence appears to have stopped for now after the two sides agreed to a truce. Earlier this week, Secretary of State Tony Blinken met with the foreign ministers of both countries on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly. Over the weekend, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Armenia and accused Azerbaijan of initiating the latest round of violence. We're joined now in Yerevan, Armenia's capital, by Rabina Magosian, who reported from the disputed region of Nagorno-Karabakh, which is at the center of the conflict, a writer and photojournalist for EVN Report. Rabina, welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you explain what happened and whether you think this truce will hold for a global audience that may not be focused on this conflict right now? Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, and unfortunately, I'm back again. Uh, I would say that. Um, well, what happened is it escalated the situation and it turned into the what it is now, the conflict on the night of the 13th. Well, uh, of course, what uh, to explain this, you need to go back and explain what happened in 2020 and then uh, also explain what happened in the last 30 years. And before that, when Nagorno-Karabakh was basically handed over to Azerbaijan because Stalin decided to do so. So there is definitely territorial conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and that's the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. And Nagorno-Karabakh uh, was part of Azerbaijan during the Soviet Union, as I said, just because uh, Stalin decided to give it away. And then they voted to join Armenia at the last years of the Soviet Union, uh, which was not accepted by the Soviet Union. And, of course, the Soviet Union collapsed and war broke up, out, which Armenia won. Since then, since 2004, we've basically had a ceasefire, but not a resolution to the conflict. Well, uh, in 2020, Azerbaijan attacked Nagorno-Karabakh proper, including the seven territories that were around Nagorno-Karabakh that were under Armenian control. So what we had in the last two years was the November 9th ceasefire uh, statement that was brokered by Russia, and it was more or less holding, and uh, we saw the deployment of Russian peacekeepers in the Nagorno-Karabakh region. So this is not Armenia proper, and the Nagorno-Karabakh, um, again, just to emphasize, is not Armenia proper. 
or the Republic of Armenia. What we're seeing now is an attack on the sovereign territory of Armenia. This is three regions of Armenia. That's the Galat-Kunik region, the Sunni region, and the Vyotsu region. And on Armenian settlements, uh, um, well, it can be explained by many that saying Azerbaijan is not very happy with the outcome of its victory. So uh, Azerbaijan feels there should be uh, more gifts. Rubina, could you explain uh, why you think uh, Azerbaijan uh, carried out this uh, massive artillery bombardment within Armenia now? Talk about the significance of this happening now. Well, uh, the significance of this happening now is, as you know, uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan are discussing a peace deal. And because both Armenia and Azerbaijan were part of the Soviet Union, the borders between the country, the two countries, have not been delimited or they're demarked. So, uh, of course, uh, this creates a problem. However, uh, we've been recognized internationally as sovereign states, so there are borders. There definitely are borders. They're just not demarked, which is a normal situation amongst a lot of countries, right? So uh, as now Armenia and Azerbaijan are talking about a peace deal. Armenia and Azerbaijan are discussing a five-point proposal that Azerbaijan made. Armenia said okay, but also added a couple of uh, sub-points uh, from what we understand. And uh, also in the November 9th agreement statement, uh, there's talk of opening communication links between Armenia and Azerbaijan and the region, and also between Azerbaijan and its enclave, Nakhichevan, that uh, that would be very well connected to Armenia otherwise. So what Azerbaijan has since tried to interpret the November 9th agreement, uh, statement is as Armenia has promised a sovereign corridor to Azerbaijan, which uh, there's no such wording in the uh, statement, which I've read over and over again, and everyone has read, but as statements go, they're open to interpretation. So Azerbaijan, uh, the general uh, understanding is, is Azerbaijan is trying through military means to pressure Armenia into granting Azerbaijan a corridor. That would be very how? devastating for Armenia because it would just sever half of the country and a whole region, Sunni region, would be cut in half. And technically, Armenia wouldn't have access to that region, which would also technically, uh, given where the court, where this road might pass, and Armenia is like adamantly said there will be no such thing as a corridor, uh, it would also jeopardize Armenia's only border, tiny border with Iran. Rubina, explain uh, what the regional situation is, the fact that Azerbaijan <laughs> receives massive support uh, from Turkey, both economic as well as military, uh, whereas Armenia was historically a key strategic ally of Russia. How is this playing out? And the fact that when Pelosi was there, she likened the situation uh, that Armenia is in now uh, to that of Taiwan and Ukraine. Do you agree with that? Well, um, definitely, I agree in case of Ukraine. And I don't know that the thing is that because of Ukraine, the army conflict in Armenia got recognized. If this had happened, prior to Ukraine or Ukraine hadn't happened, uh, there would be very little to no attention to what's happening here. And the both sidism that we've experienced historically from the international community would continue more. What we see now is a little bit more uh, 
vocal support for Armenia, and that's not for Armenia because of the you know country. It's because of the de- democracy. So Armenia is a, uh, one of the few, if not only, uh, developing democracies. Of course, we have Georgia, but it seems like Georgia is stagnated in this sense. And Armenia, despite everything, despite the war two years ago, uh, despite the political situation in the country, is continuing to move forward toward democracy. So I think this is the one thing that has changed, uh, where Armenia was recognized and values. Uh, valued as a democratic uh, country in this region that really is in need, dire need of more democracies. Well, it's in basically autocratic region. And the fact that Peskov has now weighed in, Rubina, um, uh, that he rebuked Nancy Pelosi, um, saying that um, uh, her loud announcements aren't helpful. Um, the Kremlin spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, saying that a quiet and businesslike approach to the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict will bear fruit. Where do you think this headed is headed right now? Well, similar comments from Moscow are uh, very cynical comments come from both Peskov and also Zaharova very often when situations like this arise. Uh, however, it has to be noted that since the since 2018, since the regime change in Armenia, Armenia has a more of a balanced relationship between East, uh, West and Russia. So, uh, yes, it's very uh, kind of people perceive Armenia as uh, more Russian-oriented or Russia as the security guarantor of Armenia, but we're seeing that that's not true. And uh, because this is not the first attack on Armenia's sovereign territory, there was there was a similar situation, but not to this extent, in Davos uh, two years ago. And Armenia did re- apply to the CSTO and to the uh, agreement, uh, friendship agreement and collaboration agreement it had with Russia since the 90s to send uh, military help or uh, help. And we've had a sim- uh, the response was not what uh, CSTO is about. The response is not what is expected because uh, in the CSTO charter, it says an attack against one uh, member state is an attack against all member states. While what CSTO did back then didn't respond much. Uh, a couple of years ago, this time they said we're uh, sending a fact-finding mission. And finally, Rubina, we just have a, a minute. If you could comment on that question of Turkey's support uh, for Azerbaijan effectively against Armenia and, of course, the history of uh, Turkey and Armenia, uh, deeply associated, of course, with the genocide of the Armenian people uh, during World War One. Well, Turkey's support for support for Azerbaijan is nothing new. In fact, uh, during the first war in the 90s for Nagorno-Karabakh, Turkey closed off borders with Armenia uh, in support of Azerbaijan. So as such, it's not new. It's always been there. It's always been very demonstrative and it's been very vocal. So uh, this also, uh, unfortunately, uh, falls in line with this pan-Turkic uh, narrative that Turkey has already, in, especially in recent years, been pushing forward. Uh, Azerbaijan and Turkey are uh, one con- two sister countries, brother countries. It's one country, uh, one nation, two countries. Uh, and if you look at the map, Armenia is right in the middle. So uh, if uh, I know this is an exaggeration and it's not uh, necessarily kind of uh, what's happening right now, but if Armenia didn't exist, 
uh, of Armenia was a weaker state, it would be very easier for Azerbaijan and Turkey to kind of um, expand their brotherhood. Ravina Margosian, I want to thank you for being with us, writer and photojournalist who writes for EVN Report in Armenia, speaking to us from Yerevan. Coming up, Cuba's deputy foreign minister, Carlos Fernandez de Cossio. Stay with us. Music by Yossi Heredia, Cuban musician. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. A number of world leaders addressing the U.N. General Assembly this week have called for the United States to lift its 60-year economic blockade on Cuba, including Argentina's President Alberto Fernandez and Honduran President Xiomara Castro. The body is set to vote for the 30th year in a row this fall in favor of a resolution to end the U.S. blockade. Cuba's Foreign Minister Bruno Rodriguez addressed the General the U.S. government continues to ignore the demand, almost an encouragement for me to continue its illegal and cruel policy against Cuba. It persists in its efforts to generate material shortages, scarcity and suffering, so discouragement, dissatisfaction, and to cause harm to the Cuban people. The government of the United States puts pressure on governments, banking, institutions, and companies from all over the world interested in having relations with Cuba and obsessively pursues all sources of income to provoke an economic collapse. On Wednesday, the United States announced it'll fully resume processing Cuban immigrant visa applications, which have been handled at the U.S. Embassy in Guyana since 2017 under the Trump administration. Cubans have been part of record number of migrants and refugees at the U.S. border recently. Some have been bused north by Republican governors, along with Venezuelans and Nicaraguans. Again, this is Cuba's Foreign Minister Bruno Rodriguez addressing the U.N. Hemos alertado claramente. We urge the government of the United States to solve the issues which fuel irregular migration and promote the loss of life, such as its failure since 2017 to comply with the obligation, according to valid bilateral agreements, to grant no less than 20,000 annual visas for migrants. The existence of the Cuban Adjustment Act, the politically motivated privileged treatment, the restrictive pressures on countries of regular transit, and the reinforced economic blockade. For more, we're joined by Carlos Fernandez de Cossio, Cuba's deputy foreign minister, who's here in New York with the foreign minister. Welcome to Democracy Now! Um, thanks so much for joining us. If you can talk about the Biden administration, do you see real changes from the Trump administration? You told AP that you met recently with Biden administration officials, while they don't agree with keeping Cuba on the state of state sponsors of terrorism, that um, it has to be done anyway for political reasons. Where is the change? Thank you for having me. Uh, the announcement yesterday, uh, what it does is tries to correct one of the first 
measures of over 240 that were applied during the Trump administration against Cuba and against the policy that had achieved progress in the bilateral relationship between 2015 and 2016. The last of which measures was including Cuba in the list of countries that allegedly sponsor terrorism. Yes, we have had talks with the U.S. government. We have official channels of communication. Those were never interrupted. And we have expressed that there's no substance, there's no foundation to have Cuba in that list. And we have not received any argument, any evidence, any, any reason why Cuba should continue to be in the list where it should never have been. The reason, it's not said openly, but the reason that one can only understand for that not to be changed are political reasons, dealing more with domestic realities in the U.S. than with the real fight against terrorism or with having to do more than with bilateral relations or with international relations. Uh, and Deputy Foreign Minister, if you could talk about what the effects of these continuing sanctions are on Cuba, particularly now, given the uh, dual uh, effects of the um, uh, invasion of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and its, its ripple effects and uh, the, the high rate of inflation, uh, the devaluation of the currency of the peso. Uh, there have been widespread blackouts, uh, as well as long queues for basic commodities. And of course, the, the pandemic, the lockdowns associated with the pandemic have also had terrible effects on people in Cuba. So if you could talk about the, the economic situation there. For this to be understood, Americans would have to think what it would imply for their livelihoods and for the economy of the U.S. if a large economy, for example, like the European Union, were to severe relationship with the United States and stop all sales to the U.S. and all purchases from the U.S. and deprive the U.S. from the possibility and American citizens from doing financial transactions in Europe or in other parts uh, of the world. Or if the United States economy all of a sudden could not export weapons anymore. Just to give you one feature of an important factor of the U.S. economy, if the arms industry could not export weapons, what would be the effect for the U.S. economy? If a country like smaller than the European Union, like Mexico, were to stop its economic relationship totally with the United States? Well, you can multiply that. You can see the impact for Cuba when an economy with, a, with an overwhelming impact and weight around the world has a capacity to punish Cuba, to put obstacles to Cuba's transaction in any country around the world, commercially, financially, and technologically. All that has a huge impact in the livelihoods and in the standard of living and the Cuban population. And the worst is that that is by design. The aim of the United States policy since 1960 has been to make life as difficult and as unbearable as possible for the people of Cuba with the ambition that that would lead to the overthrow of the government. That is the impact for the people of Cuba. If you could talk about President Biden calling Cuba a failed state, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, in terms of health care, um, recent figures show Cubans can expect to live to 79. For the first time in the United States, life expectancy has dropped, the first time in a century. Um, several years, U.S. numbers dropped to 76. Can you talk about Cuba's health care system and also how you've dealt with COVID, the difference between the United States and Cuba and your development of vaccines? Declaring Cuba 
or calling Cuba a failed state seem like a confession of wishful thinking. That has been the aim of the policy of the United States, to make Cuba what it is not. If you look at Cuba's social progress, compared not to developing countries, but compared to the U.S. in education, in the guarantee of quality health care for all, in science and technology, there's no way that anyone with a sensible mind and with information could call Cuba a failed t- a state, even though, as I said, it is the aim of the U.S. Cuba has come out of the COVID pandemic with our own resources, in spite of U.S. hostility during that period, as a result of the robust nature of our public health system and as a result of our scientific results and the fact that we produced our own vaccines, not one, but five candidates, three of which were applied and were the ones that had a major role in solving the problems. Cuba continues to thrive in terms of art creation, art training, education, science, sports, in spite of the very difficult economic conditions that we have. That, those are not the characteristics of a failed state. Foreign Minister, if you could uh, respond to some of the criticisms that have been made, uh, not by the U.S. government, but by human rights groups about the extent to which there's been a crackdown on dissent and fears now that the recent penal code that was approved in Cuba uh, may lead to even more punitive uh, uh, responses uh, against dissent and uh, less freedom of expression for those who oppose the government. That is a narrative deliberately crafted by the U.S. government to justify the changes in policy introduced by the Trump administration, and that continues to be repeated. The new penal code in Cuba has been a step forward. It incorporates some of the most progressive uh, legal issues regarding criminal activity, uh, regarding uh, respect for the, for the people who participate, for the people who are prosecuted. It is a step forward in line with some of the most progressive instruments in that nature, promoted by the United Nations and by resolutions of the United Nations. Can you talk about the referendum that Cubans will vote on this Sunday, uh, the new code legalizing same-sex marriage and civil unions, allowing same-sex couples to adopt children, uh, would also allow prenuptial agreements and surrogate pregnancies if they're nonprofit. Explain where this came from and what you expect to happen. What we're, we're going to vote on on Sunday is what we call the Families Code. It will replace the previous Family Code in plural, and this one is in, in singular, I mean. This one is in plural because it, it, it's based on the concept that there are different types and different uh, nature of, of families. It has many features that modernize our Family Code, which is outdated, it was progressive in the 1970s, but today, with the cultural evolution, with the ethical evolution in Cuba, with what happens around the world, what we see happens around the world, it tries to incorporate the most advanced characteristics of families in terms of children, the rights of women, the rights of people to form a communal union without having to depend on a legal instrument, and yet have the rights in terms of inheritance, in terms of property, that people who are married have. It also does not try to define who can form a union based on gender or political orientation. It, it, it provides many new rights for the population without it taking away any of the existing rights. That is, in, in, in synthesis, the basis of this code. It is controversial because it, it breaks with traditional uh, uh, prejudices, 
with sometimes with the religious considerations, with ethical patterns of, of thinking. But we are sure it will have the support of the majority of the Cuban population. And because of this controversy, it, it, was, uh, it was considered that there was a need for a referendum. And that's what we're planning to do on, on Sunday. Deputy Foreign Minister, I'd like to ask about uh, uh, the foreign policy of Cuba, in particular with respect to uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. When the invasion occurred shortly thereafter, there was a vote in the General Assembly in March where the majority of countries condemned the invasion and, and Cuba, in fact, then abstained. And then more recently, uh, the majority of the General Assembly voted in favor of allowing uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky to submit a pre-recorded speech, but, but Cuba joined uh, uh, Belarus, Eritrea, Nicaragua, North Korea, Russia, and Syria in voting against. Uh, if you could talk about what Cuba's position is on this war. Cuba's position is not new. For some years now, we have been alerting of the dangerous uh, path taken by the U.S., trying to push NATO in an aggressive position, threatening Russia. It would be naive, and it was naive, to expect that Russia would not react one moment or the other. So we, in our position, we say there's a huge responsibility by the U.S. government by pushing NATO in an aggressive position against Russia. At the same time, Cuba cannot support and does not support the transgression of the sovereign borders or the sovereignty and territory of any country. That explains our abstention in the resolution that took place in the UN. We also have a great support for some of the resolutions that were quoted in that uh, resolution. We couldn't vote uh, against them. Now, we clearly see that there has been a path, and it's not only with Russia, by the U.S. to act as an aggressive hegemon, trying to, to, to tear down or to put down any country that it seems that eventually eventually could be a rival to the United States. That is not the way to conduct international relations. It only serves U.S. big corporate interests. It doesn't serve the people of the United States. It doesn't serve the people around the world. And it's a transgression of international law. It's a transgression of peace and of security for all nations. Your response to the mass protests um, in Russia right now, as, uh, as President Putin has uh, declared that he will now uh, send 300,000 more troops to Ukraine? It's a domestic issue of Russia. We will not respond to that, as you have domestic uh, mass protests in the United States every now and then. Um, your response to uh, President Biden um, now saying that um, he will soon spend $6.25 million in so-called democracy promotion funding aimed at toppling the Cuban government. You said in any nation this is illegal. Um, explain. Well, it is illegal to try to overthrow the government of any country. And spending millions of dollars of U.S. taxpayers' money to try to overthrow a government in Cuba. You can claim it's for democracy, you can claim it's for the protection of human rights, but everybody who has a little information and understand the history would know that the aim is that the United States cannot accept and does not want to accept a government in this region that is not subject to the demands of corporate interests, whose government cannot be bought with money, where politicians respond to the people and not to who pays the most, where we can carry out social, health, 
we educational housing policies without having to ask the permission of the International Monetary Fund. Carlos Fernandez de Casio, Cuba's deputy foreign minister, we thank you for being with us, speaking to us from New York. That does it for our broadcast. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Stay safe.